Hey y'all, it's Bowen here, and this is part of a series of conversations that I'm putting out on my Substack, which is called Decide Nothing. I love having the opportunity to work on the topics that I write about with other people, and so here you'll find us exploring subjects such as what it's like to be a man, how we become who we are, how to connect with intuition and the subconscious, relationships, love, sexuality, passion, purpose, addiction, and depression, and most of all, how to become ourselves as much as possible. Today I'm talking with my old friend Anthony David Adams. Anthony and I go back almost 20 years to when we were in grad school together in Wisconsin, and we have had a lot of adventures together since then. We've done the trip down to Baja, California in my old F-250, after which we started a company together called Credit Covers. We lived together for some time in San Francisco, and most recently we were in Corsica doing the GR20 over two weeks in May and June of this year. Anthony has done a lot of activism and therapeutic work with psychedelic medicine. He was the first person to administer underground MDMA on national television on a PBS series called The Mysteries of Mental Illness, which came out in 2021. And he now works providing coaching and advising for visionary leaders through a program called Earth Pilot Alchemy. Anthony is someone that has worked very hard to turn his own shadow into gold, and he's a man that I truly love and respect, which is the main reason that I invited him to be here today. And, as much as I'm looking forward to my own book, I can't wait to read his, because there aren't all that many people who have successfully cured themselves of serious mental illness and lived to tell the tale. As I edited this interview, I was struck again with how powerful it feels for me to have this opportunity to go deeper with people that I'm connected to through my life and my writing. I'm feeling very grateful and appreciative. Anthony, thank you for your vulnerability, your heart, and your spirit. And again, for being here with me today. I'll see you on the road, my friend. Anthony, welcome. Thank you for being here and for taking the time for a conversation today. It's great to be here, Bowen. Yeah, it's great to have you, man. I feel like this has been a long time coming. There's a question that I always love to ask, which is, can you give me an example of another man that you love and respect, that you admire for his presence and how he shows up in the world? A role model, let's say, for positive masculinity and personhood. I read this question and all of a sudden there was just this flood of men that started coming through my mind from the time that I was 18 to current times. One of the pieces that this question brought up for me was that the more that I've come to connect and respect myself, the easier it's been for me to look back and just see how awesome it's been to have some really incredible men in my life, you being one of them. But the piece that really felt the most resonant was actually my father. And that wasn't probably always easy for me to say or identify with. I think that, again, as I've done more work on myself and come to peace with aspects of my own humanity, I've been able to see how awesome it's been to experience my dad's presence in my life and the way that he's consistently shown up for difficult conversations about our past together and just shit that I was going through to be able to watch him professionally and the work that he's done as a teacher and then to be able to kind of get awareness and insight into how he's taught me to be a teacher in a way, just through the way that he's taken his time to explain things. There was just a way that with my relationship with him, 
I've come to appreciate so much of it the older that I get and the deeper that I go in that relationship. He's just a really kind and gentle soul. He also isn't afraid to speak the truth, isn't afraid to be a heretic within institutions. And I think just the example that he set for me in terms of showing up for your family with like everything you've got, continuing to stay in difficult conversations. Also, when I've seen just his humanity come through where things have been challenging, he always comes back around though into the relationship. And also just the way that he spends his free time, like he's still active, he's still playing golf. He spends a lot of his time doing volunteer work. I mean, he loves to build things like some waitress that brings him coffee. The next thing I know, he's at her house giving some woman like a new kitchen or remodeling something just out of the kind of heart because she needs it. He really uses his gifts in that way. You know, it taught me that a great way to spend your time is being of service and sharing with people and how rewarding and fulfilling that can be. So yeah, even though it feels a little cheesy, it feels like that's coming from a place of a lot of work to be able to get to true appreciation for him and the, just the deep presence he's had in my life. Yeah, I appreciate that. It takes work for us to come around to be able to appreciate our fathers. And I would say the same is true for me. I definitely love my dad and respect him. And I would have hesitated. It would have been more complicated, yeah. you know, for a lot of my life. I think often about archetypes for certain ages of my life. Mm. Like when I meet someone who's in their 80s, it's just that I'm like, oh, this is like the kind of person I want to be when I'm 80. You know, I've always really appreciated Joe Campbell's work, you know, encountering him. I was like, if I was an alien to planet Earth, mm. I'd want this person to show me around. Mm. And I've always appreciated his approach and this kind of mythic lens on life. You mean Joseph Campbell? Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, storyteller. The hero's journey. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. I've always appreciated his curiosity and uh, interest. Just a really you know, beautiful, beautiful soul. And you've heard him speak in his own voice? Yeah. I, there was an old series. I think Susan Sarandon hosted this thing. Uh, it took me three tries. The first two times I tried to watch it, I fell asleep. And then something clicked, and then I just binge-watched everything I could find on Joseph Campbell. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Part of this for me is yeah. someone's presence. Yeah. Yeah, how they physically show up how they are able to speak and bring their voice and like mm. and express their personality, their individuality, how, you know, ready they are to speak. So it's often for me, comedians, actors, right. you know, people who are really kind of trained in that and are yeah. able to bring it back into their personal yeah. lives. Campbell was fantastic. I think that he was a teacher. So he was kind of on that stage. Interestingly enough, my father was also an mm. educator, a teacher. He was also a stand-up comedian for a chunk of his life. Well, yeah, all teachers are stand-up comics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> At least that'd be good cross-training, yeah. right? It was a cool question because it brought up like 50 men. They're just some incredible people that I've had, in many cases, a deep personal relationship with. I'm thinking of like Eben Pagan or Dr. Neil Goldsmith or Jason Gaddis. I encountered their work, mm. read their book or something, and then... Five, 10 years later, found myself becoming close with them, building a friendship with them, which was kind of just a wild feature of your heart bringing you to what you're meant to be with. And again, even with those individual people, the more that I've dealt with myself, the more just in awe I get to be of these people that are around me and to see how powerful these facets of them are and how they've shaped me and how they've impacted me. It's great to hear that you've had so many positive examples in your life. Related then is when do you feel like you became yourself? Is there a particular time that you feel that you became the version of yourself that you are now? It feels like it's a verb, becoming yourself, that it's just the deepening into something. So with that is kind of a 
caveat. The thing that really stands out is a psychedelic experience when I was 18 that was really transformative for me. I had been at this fish concert in Oswego, New York. It was like a, an airport runway. I'd taken a bunch of friends there and I had just taken way too many mushrooms. That was kind of a state experience of myself. And what I mean by that is there was this constellation of things that happened where bought some mushrooms from somebody, ate them, and thought they weren't working and like went back and was like, you sold me bad mushrooms. The guy's like, well, here's some more, man. You know, yeah. ate all of those. And then it just like <laughs> kind of thought I was going to die. I had a really weaponized intelligence up until that point, you know, meaning that I used my intellect to keep distance mm. with people and to always be the first one to like win the fight. And there was something in that moment of being kind of shot out of my reality on psychedelics, walking through this fish crowd where some other side of me came out, which was just the noticing, like this felt so groundbreaking at 18 that I could just walk up to somebody and just say hello and I could watch their state change and they'd become happy. And they would like, just my presence of being with them was something that didn't need to be about one-upping somebody or dominating them intellectually. It was just this presence, playful, really. Mm -hmm. And at 18, that was such a profound realization for me. It really shook mm -hmm. off a tremendous amount of survival strategy. And I think that there was some deeper realization that love was the most important thing in the universe and some other like wisdom kind of transmission. But that was more of a state. It wasn't like a stage of development. I think that I've spent the last 20 some years working on myself to get to return back to that place knowing that i'm enough in the moment and that's all i really need to show up with for people professionally creatively socially whatever so i think that was the first time that i got a real taste of what it was like to be myself individually in this way i think that now i just i have moments you know not potentiated by psilocybin often in my coaching work with people mm. where it's like we enter into this uncharted territory. When I move from something just authentically in myself, it feels a bit vulnerable and I bring that to the space. And then that results in some profound shift or that gives the person the thing that they need that feels somewhat effortless for me. There is this sense of the verb of becoming self, you know, of being in a place of oh, this is my self-expression through this work. And the more that I can continue to do that, the greater the impact and really the healthier I get to be in life. What comes to mind for me is how often it feels to me that this becoming of myself happens in relationship with other people. It's certainly true for me that I didn't really feel much like myself or anybody until I figured out how to be more in connection. There'll be these moments where I get into a new context. I think like the first men's weekend that I went to, which is one of Andrew Horn's Junto weekends, I noticed it in Corsica hiking with you. I noticed it at Burning Man most recently, you know, that there's this experience of finding myself in a new context, which is interesting. Like nothing has actually changed about some part of me, mm -hmm. but I'm bringing a self that I'm familiar with into a new space that I'm unfamiliar with. And there's some kind of rediscovery that happens mm -hmm. in that place. You mentioned the discovery of ourself in the space of relationship. And I'm forgetting the name of the f developmental psychologist that said this, but it was this idea that before there was a self, there was a relationship. That before I had a sense of self, there was just this. So the self emerges from relationship. That there's mm. just this relationship between mother and child. And then through that, you know, or through parent and other, mm. that there is this sense of self that emerges from that. I haven't 
actually heard it articulated in that specific way, but it certainly relates to my experience. I mean, for a lot of my life, my identity was poorly formed. And I know that's true really for a lot of people. Of course, that's also a verb, you know, we're constantly becoming, but there was a real step change that happened when I began to focus on deeper relationships and carrying that becoming self of my own into relationship after relationship and situation after situation and gradually accumulating more there of something to refer to, something to come back to, or some sort of coalescence of self. So we're both men. And on this question comes up for men and in men's work of what does it mean to be a man? And when does one become a man? I've been asked that question. You know, when did I feel like I became a man? It's specific and it's also very nebulous. It's a psychological construct, really. But I would say it wasn't really until my 40s. And in a lot of ways, a big milestone for me there was when I stopped drinking alcohol. And that opened up my consciousness and my self in a really large way. So when do you feel that you became a man? Became a man. Yeah. Is there a particular time? It's an important question. And at the same time, it's kind of just like so many different things. I think it's meaningful and it's meaningless. That's part of exactly. the reason that I've been asking this question of myself and others, because what's the difference between being a man or a woman and a person or an adult? Well, something and nothing. Man to me feels like an adult male. Right. It's like there is some adulthood transition. Yeah. And when I think about, you know, maleness, it really does seem to me it is a function of my biological makeup. I mean, I can't claim to know anything other than I do have a penis and I live in a world where I can relate around certain things to other people that have penises that, you know, our culture calls men. I feel a bit more permission to coach or guide men just because I feel I've experienced being a man in that way. But this idea of a transition to adulthood, for me, it's a function of responsibility. This may be connected more to what adulthood is, but because I'm a male, becoming a man to me means becoming an adult in the biological container that I'm in. You know, we're not like insects that have these very clearly defined stages of life where we come out of the cocoon and then all of a sudden, oh, it's an adult butterfly. We're a very mushy species in that way. And we develop along different lines and there's a lot of complexity. I have a very specific memory of when I made a conscious decision to feel my emotions. Mm. It was maybe a decade ago when I started down this path of taking a look at my inner world, kind of getting initiated, thrown into this psyche, uh, the sea of my subconscious that was very tumultuous. You know, my background is like psychosis and visionary states of consciousness. So I imagine this is a fairly unique kind of thing. But I was in a conflict with a relationship partner with a woman, and I was in a lot of pain around it. And I remember sitting in my bed and this woman came to me, like an image of a woman came to me at my bedside. She was shimmering. She was green. She had her arms out her cupped hands out. And, and the message was like, this pain is your medicine. You need to drink this and be with it. Mm. And I did that, you know, I kind of drank this medicine from her and it was like a four hour ordeal of going into myself and seeing this writhing ball of black eels and coldness and darkness and fear. And I came out the other side of that, just feeling relaxed and connected and more mm. clear. 
that there was a path of kindness and gentleness with this particular relationship. And that was a sober experience. I'd never done an ayahuasca ceremony, but later on an ayahuasca shaman would say, oh, well, the spirit of ayahuasca came to you. You know, that was, you know, that was an ayahuasca trip, which I don't put a lot of meaning on that outside of that was just their interpretation of it. That was the first time that I oriented myself inward towards difficult emotions that previous to that moment, I would have said, like, sadness has no value. Anger has no value. Envy, these darker emotions have no value. That was the start of a process that I've taken responsibility for my inner world and by extension for my relationships and for my life and to step out of blame and criticism. And again, it wasn't just a cocoon to a butterfly moment. It's a gradient of development. But I think that was the first time that I would identify as saying I consciously took responsibility for my internal world and was able to assign and explore the meaning and the value in the difficulty of it. Yeah. And I think that's what being a man is. You know, be, and being, being an, adult. an adult. I think that that's yeah. what being an adult is. Yeah. And being a man is becoming an adult in the male body. Yeah. I hear that very much as a moment of moving consciously into adulthood and also that it was something that you arrived at yourself. I share that experience. You know, people often talk about these moments of initiation. We don't really have them in American right. culture. The part about that that resonates with me most is that often I've been able to become something or make a transition, you know, because someone says, well, you are this now, or this is happening now. Right. Right. Just to declare it is what I mean. To declare it. Yeah. Or to be invited. Yeah. Right. Has anything like that ever happened to you where someone has made a specific invitation, extended their hand and pulled you into the next chapter, so to speak? Well, the first men's retreat that I went to, and I think that it was a conversation about masculinity and are you being a man? I recall that being a moment where they're like, okay, if you haven't been initiated into a man, this is your moment. You know, this is kind of the time. So that was a moment of invitation by other men to be- It had some meaning for you. It carried some weight. There was a lot that came through from that introduction into men's work. That concept of rediscovery of self, I realized at the end of that three days, there was a different version of me. And previous to that, I realized in the final day of that men's weekend that when I was younger, if I was in a room with 20 or 30 guys, it was often me fighting them off of me. You know, it was like getting jumped or getting beat up or having to like physically fight my way out of a mob. Mm. That was like my experience of being in rooms of just men. Mm. I'd never had an experience of being in a room with 20 men where it wasn't some kind of fight. What do you mean? Like at a music show or like, no, no, like a frisbee game or something? No, I mean more like high school times, you know, of physical fighting getting jumped, like 10 guys on top of you and you're fighting or being Mm. in a a woods party, being surrounded by 10 or 20 guys Mm. and then breaking a bottle on my car and having my best friend needing to literally fight through 20 or 30 guys, get in a car, drive through them, high-speed car chase. My hometown was a pretty gnarly, violent place. So (laughs) I had this moment of being in this room with these guys where I was like, these guys are going to kill me. Like I had to conscious, oh, they're not going to kill me. They're not trying to kill me, you know? And I could see that there was this residual energy of just defendedness and that fell apart in a big way. You know, I've heard a lot of men talk about that. Yeah. And and having that experience, it's not part of my experience. Yeah. And so it's interesting to just hear you. I didn't really know that was part of your youth. You talk about this men's retreat that you went to. And I think there's something very simple about how these archetypal initiations that we imagine or we've heard about or we see in other cultures where there's studying and preparation and there's an invitation and there's a declaration and then a celebration. And so people might wonder, how can I go to some sort of 
modern thing that you just sign up for on the internet and yeah. kind of make up for this lack of initiation with something that's just kind of cooked up by some random totally you yeah. know yeah and what it is for me is a simple experience of as you put it being invited into or showing up for and then being accepted into a group of other men strangers let's yeah. say mostly strangers and just accepted as an equal for no reason other than well we all showed up here and you know we're all just guys right that in itself is a very powerful mm. initiation and invitation right i have that feeling in me of being in a group of 80 guys like that same yeah. sort of thing where after a little while i'm looking around the, around the room and i'm like Okay, I am just as much as any one of these other guys. I don't know any of them, but we all just showed up here. So we must be all equal. Mm. I must be one of them. It's a very, very mm. simple experience. And so I think that really does have a lot of power. And it sounds like it did for you, actually. It was a powerful experience. I then went on to co-lead a smaller men's group for a couple of years after that. Mm -hmm. That was my introduction into men's work, really. When I was going through psychedelic therapy myself, I had a mentor who was working with me, mm -hmm. an older man. There was a moment where kind of felt like, not that everybody had given up, but like that there was a lot of people that I weren't really in my life anymore. And that I was kind of in this no man's land experience. Yeah. And I was watching this mentor of mine work with me in the psychedelic space. And I was watching with a lot of awe and reverence and feeling like it was a pretty righteous path to kind of risk your liberty to offer this medicine. And this was like kind of before it was so popular, you know, and I just thought, what a cool way to spend your time. I thought to myself, well, how could I do something like that? I never vocalized this to him. Mm -hmm. One day I was at his place and he just said, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life, but given your background and given what you've been through, you're really perfectly suited to do this work. And would you be interested in becoming a sitter or guide for people? Yeah. And it was such a beautiful moment of like, mm -hmm. you can feel my eyes. Like it was just this, something that I was in my heart, couldn't vocalize it. And he just saw it. And I was like, well, of course, you know, well, let's start training. Let's do this thing. I thought, well, what's the curriculum or whatever? And he's like, you don't, you really don't understand. Like you're ready now. Yeah. And he started sending people to me. Wow. And it was just like, whew, yeah. really wild, you know, yeah. and then stayed there as a person and as a mentor. Right. And the message was just like, your presence is enough. Like inside of you, your humanness is all it takes. This is, it's not about being a shaman or some magical human being, really. The, the magic is in the, the divinity is in the humanness and in the vulnerability of your presence. Well, and in, in the experience that you went through of waking up or coming out of psychosis, really, passing through Passing that, through it. Yeah. And graduating, digesting that, really. <laughs> yeah. integrating that. Yeah. And then being able to not just be aware of it and speak about it, but to do so with other people. It was beautiful. The moment was also a moment of invitation into something bigger, an yeah. invitation into more responsibility, an invitation into a community, being recognized in a community as having value, and then being responsible, a high level of responsibility for the safety of somebody, their journey, et cetera, the safety of the community itself, because it's yeah. of an underground nature and just everything that entailed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was an initiation. I was pretty green. Even that process was a very healing experience and yeah. journey. And I wasn't even personally out of the woods yet, really. I mean, so much stuff yeah. came up along the way that I had to re-integrate yeah. and be with. But that moment stands out. A recognition and an invitation. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, there's a couple other directions that we can go for that. You've 
use this phrase in talking to me in the past that you come to see that your dharma, your work in the world is working through your own psychological state and using that experience to help others. I mean, I was deeply suicidal, deeply psychotic in San Francisco, you know, 10, 11 years ago. Well, when you were living with me, right? <laughs> living with you a bit, yeah. living with Michael Vassar from the Singularity Institute. I'm working with Michael on this startup that Peter Thiel had funded called MediMed, which was this mm -hmm. private medical research outfit, trying to figure out this relationship with that psychiatrist at Stanford. And the strategies that I was having were just no longer working to deal with its internal stuff. And it was yeah. showing up as terrifying visionary states, paranoia, psychosis, suicidal ideation, depression, like it was all that stuff. And it was like this perfect storm. You know, it was like a perfect storm of things where through the work with MetaMed, actually, I was conditioned to look deeper into the medical world. When you walk into a hospital, it's kind of like going 30 years into the past. The standard of care is just by the nature of the way information flows. It's really outdated, actually. Yeah. And so I read every primary research paper that I could on schizophrenia, bipolar, manic psychosis, depression, like all this stuff. And then also the treatments, you know, the idea of using Prozac or the SSRIs, like what was actually happening there. And... Well, that just felt like there was not much foundation, actually. It was like the housing bubble that when people realized that the credit default swaps were just junk, it was like, yeah. wait a second, this whole industry is like super shaky. And I began to take on a more mythic approach, more Eastern, more a traditional approach to it. There was a specific moment where I said, you, you've been diagnosed with this thing and you can choose. This diagnosis can be your dharma or your dogma. Dogma being somebody else's thinking about something. I see. And I said, this is my dharma is to work with whatever is here. And it just felt like the perfect storm of just enough information to put some cracks in the current paradigm that I was in the middle of and really right up against with you know, dating a Stanford psychiatrist, having a Stanford psychiatrist, like being in this bubble and being told you're the only medication the rest of your life. Yeah. Like really intense, yeah. terrifying Imagine stuff, you know? Terrifying. And it wasn't guaranteed. I think that was the big piece too, is that it was this internal vision of like a Mount Everest, really. And a sense that it's there, it's climbable. It doesn't mean you can climb it, but it's a possibility, you know? And just like when people climb Everest, there's bodies in the crevasses that haven't yes. made it. Same kind of deal. Yeah. But if you do it, if you choose to take it on, Completing that journey will be beneficial, not just for you, but for other people. You'll wear the path a bit more that somebody else might be able to go deeper into themselves and kind of come through it. And once my heart saw that vision, I said, there's a possibility here, like it's worth going for. And, you know, it wasn't a quick process and it cost a lot of relationships. A lot of people left my life. They were afraid of it. There was a lot of challenge with it. It's not that it was their work to stick around while I was figuring that stuff out. You know, they're human. But, but I also did begin to find traces of a path. Other people that were reassuring. Our friend Peter, I remember taking a walk with him once in a conversation that he said, and he's like, you know, guys like me spend a bunch of money to go in the jungle and experience a state of consciousness for a weekend that you might experience just by breathing in a certain way that you're kind of in as a default. And he said, your work in many ways is about learning to come back from that space. Yes. And, you know, kind of come back through the door and to pay rent and to like get food. I have a basic relationship. And I think that that conversation that began in my own heart and then with people around me that was around just the inherent value of my experience. That w whatever state of consciousness I was in, there was a value to it. And not just for me, but in the kind of traditional sense, this idea that the psychotic or the schizophrenic is the one who is willing to sit at the seat at the table no one wants to sit at. And that there's a shamanic phenotype, so to speak, which is just mm -hmm. 
think, sensitive and has a particular wounding in a way that they feel the pain of the values that are becoming underrepresented in the tribe mm. as the technology advances or as the tribe kind of drifts in a certain direction. They start to feel that pain. As you talked about turning that shadow into gold, this part of me that Western psychiatry and previous people were saying, we need to get rid of this and medicate it away. Once I took responsibility for the value of that part of myself, it began to get reflected into the world. It's been incredible and fascinating to see you go through this transformation and emerge mm. as a more whole person, mm. as a more functional person, mm. and to see you integrate this experience, this, let's say, unusual flavor of some parts of your consciousness with the rest of what is a very whole and sane mm. person. And to move past the rejection from the diagnosis into gnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it felt like that was the journey. I mean, the gnosis piece really felt like that was this idea of becoming a functional person, like becoming human. Yes. You know, like I didn't need to be a superhuman or subhuman in some way. Yeah. But just in my humanity and in that there, there's a divinity in the humanness, which is actually enough to be here in the vulnerability of life and the participation in that. That feels like what it was about coming back to that, you know? Becoming human. You know, I wanted to use that for the name of this podcast, but mm. it's already like six other podcasts. I think that, well, of course, that was some <laughs> 70s psychology book that I read. That too, that too, that too. Well, thanks for sharing more of that story. As I said to you, there's a big story there, a very important story that I really feel and needs to be told. It feels important to point out to you that just as a point of information, that is, I am so far away from the psychosis and the suicidal depression. Like I really experienced life into such a deeply grateful, connected space most of the time. It feels important to designate because I think that there was kind of a coping, like white knuckling way of saying, I'm going to mm -hmm. do this without medication or something. And that wasn't it. Like that was not the end yeah. point. You know, that wasn't just about some ongoing mental health coping. That was not the game that I'm playing. There is something that was out beyond that, that I continued to strive for and work for anew as possible and collaborate with life itself to get to. And I really feel like, again, it's an ongoing journey, but oh man, I really do feel so grateful to be alive with so much possibility. And even in the mundane shittiness of life, there's a beauty and an opportunity to just take it on as grist for your spiritual journey. I don't seek out the bullshit, but when it comes, I'm available for it. You know, it's like, well, we're going to, yeah. fix the windows or repair the solar system or whatever it is we have to do together. You know? Yeah. I'm glad that you felt to emphasize that. I have a parallel there, probably in other ways too, but certainly with my experience with alcohol, there was a moment that I realized that I no longer enjoyed the effects of alcohol and that I could see the possibility of moving past it. And that possibility, I would say, emerged from the growth of myself, right? That I had fostered along the way previous to that, as you did. And once I could see that possibility, then there was a pretty rapid shift that I experienced just in moving into a new normal, kind of a new reality. Now, it wasn't all at once, and it's still, of course, in process, as everything is, but there was no white-knuckling or, you know, great use of willpower hmm. involved. Yeah. It was a change in consciousness, you know, a closing of a chapter and an opening of a new chapter and a very positive experience, right? And also because one of the biggest parts of that realization for me was that drinking alcohol was very closely tied to a long-standing 
sort of low-level chronic depression. And so the reality of life as a joyful place to be on a daily basis, I did not have that really in the same way that I have now. And now that I do, like, wow, look at it, you know, this, this is actually yeah. really great. You know, this is right. the cliche that we're kind of sold early in life, but that no one really demonstrated. And that's part of the reason that I didn't really believe in it. People say, live every day is the fullest, you right. know? And it's like, well, it doesn't really seem like you are. Right. That is the person that's telling, telling me, they're trying to sell me that story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But man, now I know what it feels like. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great to hear that you do too. And I know that you do from my own experience. Well, and I, I experience you as someone who does live their life to the fullest. And perhaps like, I've kind of always seen that in you, but you know, that's the outside looking in yeah. that part of you that's been there all along, but maybe you're more connected to it. Yes. Yeah, you experiencing yourself as living life to the fullest. I think that those of us that have been close to you, mm. like that's how we experience you as a person who's living their life to the fullest. And you've continued to do that. You know, I stopped drinking alcohol my mid twenties or something. Right. And it really was like, it really was your fault. I don't know if you re I've shared this with you, mm. but like you invested in credit covers and that was in my mid twenties. Right. And I had this moment of like, you know, I, I have like a responsibility to this friend that I need to make this thing successful. And I clearly say alcohol is being in the way of that. Now, oh. clearly quitting drinking wasn't like sufficient for us to have that as a successful venture. Right? We, sold stickers. <laughs> we sold a lot of stickers and that was interesting. But I think that maybe that's part of your Dharma, whether you realize it or not, is to kind of help catalyze people mm -hmm. in returning back to themselves and letting go of alcohol. Cause you certainly, I mean, you did it to me, whatever, 10 or 15 years before you got around to doing it for yourself, yeah, but totally. it still was a catalyst moment for me. It really was a defining thing. I remember being like, you gotta let this go because you're trying to be successful in this way and it's going to get in the way for you. And then I just liked it, you know? Yeah. And I think on top of all the other mental challenges I was having, it was certainly something I didn't want on the table. I mean, I could really see, man, if I was just drinking to get through this stuff, like yeah. I wouldn't be alive. It became like, so it wasn't an option. Well, it just makes you so fucking miserable. That's the thing. You know? I think the part of us that reaches for alcohol or reaches for pot or whatever, that reaches for some dopamine inducing activity, numb ourselves out from our disconnection. I think that's actually a healthy part of us. It's attempting to regulate our nervous system. Once it gets a reference experience of another way of doing it, we start to trend towards that. The tendency to try to escape feelings, fears, etc. We all have it. And yet I know from my own experience now that the tendency to grow is stronger and, mm. and deeper. You can certainly get caught though in escaping <laughs> and stay there for a long, long time. And it feels like the positive feedback loops of learning and growth and expansion should be more powerful. But then again, there are lots of us, myself included, that got stuck in negative loops for a long time. It's like, just Give them some space to practice. They'll probably figure it out, actually. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. So be mindful of what you practice. That's the corollary. You get good at what you do. And so if you practice something negative, you get good at that, too. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, it gets wired in. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love feeling these days that I don't practice anything negative. Mm. My life is positive. Yeah. I feel it. I mean, I love spending time with you, especially in nature. Like I like nature, but you genuinely do. And you get like a nature boner. That's one of your phrases. <laughs> you told me that after I watched you for a couple of days in the mountains, like we'll come across these scenes and like, you genuinely are bursting with energy and excitement in these spaces. Yeah. And I love it. I mean, I feel that, but I'm not as like, expressive. I mean, it really is a very unique thing to watch you in these environments.
And it helps me be reconnected to that part of myself, you know? And so the more that I can work to stay connected to that part of myself, the more that it models for the people around me that they can be connected to them. They don't need to abandon themselves in my presence. And the more that I'm going to be able to attract the facets of people that are connected to themselves, you know, it's a virtuous cycle in that way. Yes. It is. I appreciate what you just said about nature and your experience with me. And I really admire the work that you've done with mm. yourself and getting to the point where you're able to help others. That is the work. That's the alchemy. And that's a beautiful thing to see. I appreciate that. But it's like you said, 20 years or so for our friendship. And so you really have been a person that has been with me through a lot of stuff. It's been great to have you as a touchstone, supportive, challenging me in the right ways, inviting me into environments, and also just being honest and authentic about your journey. I mean, you've grown tremendously in the 20 years we've known each other. Like I said, I generally always enjoyed being around you, but I really feel like you're enjoying being around yourself a lot more. It's the best way I can express it. I feel like you're starting to hopefully experience the version of you that those of us that have loved you for so long have gotten to experience that you've given to so many of us over the last, well, for me, 20 years. Thank you. Thank you. That's a perspective that I haven't quite heard about your experience with me and my own experience in a way. It's true. Yes, that makes sense. I am enjoying myself <laughs> more. Absolutely. And, you know, I enjoyed myself a lot 20 years ago, at least at times, but there were also a lot of times that I wasn't enjoying myself, yeah. my state of being. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm more conscious now. I'm much more conscious. I'm much more able to enjoy myself, my life, others, everything. Yeah. I feel like I'm awake now. Yeah. Like all the time. Yeah. And I wasn't, I yeah. certainly wasn't. And you could say psychologically, spiritually, it's it also just true in very concrete terms mm -hmm. and not just to do with alcohol, but certainly that was a factor. And so, yeah, I feel a lot more awake now. It's good to be awake. <laughs> How much do you feel this is just a function of getting older? This is just what 41 feels like. Right. Just able to be with myself and more accepting, you know, if I've made it this far. Definitely a big it part just, of it. Yeah. It's just getting older and the leaving behind of the parts that aren't as interesting or enjoyable and the accumulation of more of the good stuff. That's part of it. But as you know, with you and I both, there's been a conscious effort in some very specific yeah. ways to become more conscious, to move past problematic parts, to transform and digest and integrate, you know, it, it, so it's not both for sure. What do comes to mind for me from my own experience is there's a finding our way from the part of us that felt lost. And then there's something different, which is the continuous wayfinding of being close to the path and finding the path and being on the beautiful path of life itself. And now every moment of my life, and especially when I'm out in nature, is when it becomes most apparent that the constant practice of wayfinding in the world just has so many benefits. I'm not lost any longer, but the practice of wayfinding still continues to build and build and build because that experience of placing my feet from moment to moment and having the experience of like, I put my foot in the right place. I put my foot in the right place. You know, I put my foot in the right place. Right. And then you zoom out a little bit and it's like, Oh, I found the trail. I, oh, yeah, we took the right trail. Well, we took the right turn. Well, we're in the right place. Right. You know, of things working out. Yeah. Right. 
And you can zoom out to whatever level, but it begins at this very, very fundamental level. That practice just never, never stops having benefits. If you deeply understand how to find your way, you're not ever really going to feel lost. And I saw that with you in Corsica. You just run off a trail someplace and I'd be like, where are you going? It's like, well, because like you, you trust you're going to be able to find your way. You can't really get lost in that way. It's like, yeah. or, or if you do, it's just a fun challenge to figure out how right. to get back. It's not going right. to knock you off your center in some way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I have that sense with life. I'm developing that more. I don't want to be arrogant about the craziness that life can throw and the tragedy life can throw one's way that can knock you off center. But I do get the sense that this first half of my life, give or take, was really kind of crazy and challenging and difficult and almost killed me in very real ways. But it was also very internal and that the challenges ahead of me are actually real things. My parents are going to die. People are going to get sick. The actual work of life is actually still ahead of me compared to the relatively easy path I've had to navigate externally getting to this point. But I feel so much more equipped. I feel so much more competent to take on challenges that are bigger than anything that I've experienced before looking into the future. I just have a trust in myself that I can navigate those hills, so to speak, and those mountains in a way that in the past would have felt like just insurmountable. All right. Well, as a closing question, I'd love to hear what is it right now that you're working on that's got you excited that you want to share? I feel really excited about continuing to build Earth Pilot, building this coaching practice. There's always a question around like, am I being useful? And I really, I've been feeling more and more and more like I am in that pocket with the people that I'm working with. We just started this new leader, seven day leadership challenge that we're inviting people into, which is kind of a synthesis of, it's like, if I just took all the nuggets of wisdom and I only got somebody for 20 minutes a day for a week, if I could just nudge them in a direction that over time would put them in a better place, like what that would look like. And we put that together and I prototyped it and I'm really happy with that. So I'm curious to see how that grows and if people go through it and how that impacts them. And I think I'm, I'm personally just excited about I just I feel an excitement about the future. I feel excited about exploring romantic relationship at a deeper level, kind of coming from this new foundation. I feel excited about building an earthship or something in the next couple of years, you know. And I feel excited about kind of doing a lot of the same stuff. Ultimate Frisbee, being with friends, being with family, more adventures. Yeah, life does on the macro feels to keep getting better and better, you know? And so I'm excited for the future, really. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. It's good to be Captain Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> the bus has been good medicine. That's for sure. Yeah. The bus work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been a year you've been doing the bus Probably work. Probably the, the birthday. I mean. Yeah. The bus it's, day. It's a, I think it's got to be the bus day, the bus birthday. Yeah. And yeah, this year I upped the ante. I had a place in New York City that I was tethered to for the last year that I'd sublet out, but fully let that go. So I don't have a home base. that's not the road right now. Yeah. Yeah, amazing, yeah. There's parts of myself that were so afraid of so many things. Just thinking of how afraid I was, the thing I didn't even realize I was afraid oh, of. Oh, driving the bus. Driving the bus. I was terrified <laughs> of driving the bus. I almost didn't, remember, I almost didn't buy the bus because I was like, I can't parallel park it specifically. How am I going to parallel park the bus? It's so like New York City just getting yeah, in your fucking psyche. Yeah. Of course, I took the bus to New York City a couple months ago and I parallel parked it fine in the neighborhoods, you know? But that's been cool to watch the layers of, fear and paranoia and just things that aren't yeah. real like fall off my reality of just like what was that about like so afraid of this thing i almost didn't do this thing because of this yeah well, there you go i mean the bus work is good medicine it's such good medicine the van the van work has been good medicine for me too yeah you and i joke about making things medicine but i think there's a lot of truth to it yeah you know i mean i think that even 
the humor around saying I'm doing the bus work, like made it kind of a thing. And so when something would break, you know, I would say to myself, well, <laughs> here's an opportunity to become more confident knowing how to fix this thing because you're going to fucking fix this thing. You know, you're going to yeah. fix this engine or do this weird repair or whatever. And taking it on as a medicine, consciously choosing the experience as a medicine has actually been really helpful because I've watched it change me and work in these ways. You know, yeah. I was thinking of this on the drive to meet you. I did this course with Martin Shaw. He's like a mythopoetic kind of storyteller. And he said, you know, the difference between a life with myth and without myth. And he's like a life without myth. When something happens, it's just kind of a bad day, you know, it's yeah. kind of come a bummer. Right. But when you have myth in your life, there's something deeper to connect to. Yeah. And that feels so synergistic with mm. the bus work, the van work, the goat work, totally. the clown work, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We're all part of yeah. something bigger. It makes it more interesting, doesn't it? I'm so grateful to have done this. I didn't really know what to expect going into this podcast with you, but I did mm. feel really honored. And when I read through those questions, I think I got more about what you were up to. It was healing. It was good work. I'm grateful for the future opportunities other people are going to have to spend time with you in this container for them and for the people to listen, you know? Mm. So thank you for doing it. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad we had the opportunity to do this and to invite you into my world in this particular way. This is a very personal opportunity for me to explore topics that are interesting to me that I write about and to do that in dialogue with people that are important to me. It's part of the expression of my work and uh, you're part of that. So thanks. Yeah, thank you. It's great to have you, Anthony. Great to be here. All right, folks, that was my dear friend, Anthony, and that is a wrap. All the links will be in the show notes, but just so you have it here right now, you can find him and his coaching practice at anthonydavidadams.com. As I edited this interview, I was struck again with how powerful it feels for me to have this opportunity to go deeper with people that I'm connected to through my life and my writing. I'm feeling very grateful and appreciative. Anthony, thank you for your vulnerability, your heart, and your spirit. And again, for being here with me today. I'll see you on the road, my friend. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do share it with a friend and make sure you're subscribed at decidenothing.substack.com where all of my writing and audio lives. And most of all, if this brought something up for you, if you felt something, if you have a reaction, if you have some thoughts or suggestions about topics you'd like to see me explore in the future, please do leave a comment there on the Substack site. Of course, you can also reach me by email at bdwelly at gmail.com or on social media. Just search for Bowen Dwelly. Thanks again for being here, and I hope you tune in again soon.